Welcome to the Great Unraveling podcast, a podcast in which we primarily discuss politics, current affairs and social issues, but also follow the often trivial, sometimes volatile life of me, Ben Kelly, a lower tier political commentator. With me tonight is my very good friend, co-host and producer, Matt Walker. Matt. No, I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> that was completely out of step with what we usually do and I hated it. Uh, okay. But anyway, how are you today? Is that going to be the introduction now? Yeah, that's the You've introduction. You've made things yeah. awkward now. That's fine. That's fine. You've made things happy awkward. birthday. You're happy birthday to you. It's my birthday, but you're just going yeah, to yeah. ruin that. Yeah, no, happy birthday. That was shit. Well done. What, we t- what the hell are you doing? Don't want to do it now. <laughs> um, I'm doing okay, actually. It's been a bit of a low-key birthday, but, you know, let's not get into that way now. No, let's not. What are we talking about today? We're going to talk about how Britain is being held back by nimbyism. Right, and what about these two people? That here? is a not in my backyard ism. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so we've got, is it Freddie Perzer? Yep. Freddie Perzer, director of Priced Out UK. Now, previously we've had Anya Martin out from Priced Out UK, the campaign for affordable house prices. How are you doing tonight? I'm very well. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, this is how I like to spend my birthday. <laughs> and uh, Luke Dix, a particle accelerator physicist. <laughs> so you're interested you're interested according to your Twitter you're interested in brutalism and nuclear fission absolutely fission. all of the great things in life everything made of concrete basically <laughs> <laughs> lovely so we've invited you on tonight because we want to talk about nimbyism and that's general nimbyism not just housing which we discussed before and Fred is going to hopefully um, offer some insight on that but we're talking about across the board nimbyism our inability to build infrastructure, you know, nuclear power plants, high-speed rail, housing. It's just about every area of public life being held back by this inability to take on the uh, invested interests that are holding us back as a country. Fine, good. Let's talk about them. Where do you want to start? Where do I want to start? Yeah. Actually, I would like to start with something quite flippant and trivial. I want to ask this question. I'm going to role play for a second. If you're the Prime Minister, you've got a huge majority, and you've got a vanity project you can implement right now. You know, your big, your big project, your big idea. No resistance. Luke, would it be, <laughs> would it be the Cambridge? Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. I would uh, not. Well, not Cambridge. No. Um, I sorry, I look like a dickhead now. What do you mean, not Cambridge? On, on the Oxford, on the Oxford <laughs> Cambridge thing. <laughs> oh, Oxford. Oh, oh, I'm leaving jumped. now. Uh, now we've got we've got a real class divide in the podcast between two sort of Oxbridge graduates <laughs> and two sort of comedy Northerners. No. But, um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I've insulted them all my life. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have, yes, I have been. But yeah, you're right. Did you both go to Cambridge? I did not go to Cambridge. I went to Manchester and oh. now I'm at the University of Oxford. Oh, I, I did go to the University of Cambridge. Oh, God, so lame. Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> now, go on, go on. Sorry, sorry, Luke. But, but yes, getting back to the question, I'm so sorry about... I've already ruined it. But, um... No, I would turn sort of Oxford and Cambridge into sort of one massive Singapore-style city. 
that, that stretches all the way through Buckinghamshire, Bedfordshire and Northamptonshire. Basically the sort of arc 2.0 where you take the two best universities in the world, one of them slightly better than the other, and you use that to really grow the British economy and, and as a sort of base for growth where everything comes out of, where you have, or not everything comes out of, but where a lot of our scientific output will be sort of originating, where you have some of the best minds in the world all focused in one place, surrounded by various other industries and stuff that are able to feed that and work with that. Now it sounds, if you were just to come up with that idea just now off the cuff, it would sound mad, <laughs> wouldn't it, really? No, I mean, I'm not, and then, I, the, well, that's one of the reasons of it, that you're a champion of that is, it, I think it's quite, I think it's an interesting concept, and that's one of the reasons I've invited you on. There's quite a number of um, younger commentators on Twitter who are just like, why can't we pursue these big ideas? And you know, so I, I find it very uh, interesting, and, and sometimes it excites me, sometimes my more conservative instincts sink in a little bit. But that is a, an idea that intrigues me. Mine's not much different. Freddie, what's your vanity project? Um, well, connecting Cambridge and another university would be fantastic for UK pro- productivity. It would be brilliant. If it has to be... If it can't... I mean, my vanity project would be repealing the Town and Country Planning Act. Um, but that's not a... That's less built environment, but getting... There are huge swathes of regu- regulation and legislation that could just be... If you genuinely had no resistance, just, you know, get rid of that, I think. Yeah. Um, well, what do you think... Would be could be the result of that. That would how would we benefit from that? We'd see a massive building boom. We'd see possibly ten percent growth year on year for a couple of years as Britain caught up to its actual potential. Um, and we'd see riots in the streets probably. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it depends. It's impossible to tell whether these things are good or bad. Yeah, well, I'm trying to adopt a little bit of the uh, what would call the uh, columnist mentality, where you know you need to write out a. Uh, a column for the week, getting a bit of extra money, get um, get 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 an opinion column out and just say, I think we should do this. Wouldn't that be great? And just yeah, like with it? a column, you've allocated an hour to do all of the research and thinking. <laughs> How I, 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 a good a good two hours, I would say, uh, which is quite. Quite a long time for for me and a, a podcast. Yeah, yeah, and the research and thinking is is more like finding our other articles to copy. Nah. and to. <laughs> nah, let's not get too meta here. I just still need to. I still need people to commission me sometimes. Yeah, sorry. Jesus Christ! It's your livelihood at stake here, isn't it? I'm not quite. Um, my my advice project, since you asked, would be to well, it basically high speed rail, but the full fever dream of it, you know, from London to Birmingham to Manchester to Leeds, and then from whole, right across Liverpool, connect all the major northern hubs to connect them properly together, then build it up to fucking Scotland, you know what I mean? This is one of the, you know, this is kind of like a Boris-style mm. insane thing that would cost a lot of money, but then, you know, that's the whole point of this exercise. That's what I'll do, connect the north into a, a, into a major economy where you can get to each city quickly and efficiently, and, and and I agree with you on the north as well. I, I, I don't want to sound like there's some sort of southerner, because I'm not from the south, I'm from the Midlands. So let's put that one thing there. <laughs> same, same. Um, <laughs> but, but, but like the north, it's really important. You, I was living in Manchester as a student for four years. and <laughs> because, <laughs> I couldn't, I mean, You couldn't sound more southern than if you tried. No, I know. <laughs> Just we, we have had a lot of... Posh Southerners on this podcast. <laughs> that, that's that's the same. Same. It's fine. 
as I said before the podcast, my grandfather was a miner. And, <laughs> but, but generally, of course, when, the first time I went to Leeds as a student, just sort of on a party, going to see some friends. I mean, it, it take, it's ridiculous. It, the, the transport links are pathetic. Leeds has lost out on a lot of uh, direct investment opportunity because it doesn't have a tram line and doesn't have. Yeah. Because it, you know, it's not a, you know, by American standards or whatever. It's not. A, it's not a you know metropolis like that. But it is a city that could benefit from you know getting being able to get around it quickly. Um, ben, do you want to hear mine? Yes, I do actually. I would bring back public hanging. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think we've come, like, you know, too... Div- obviously, we've still got hankering for it, haven't we? Like, Twitter, cancel culture. We obviously still want to see people hurt, and we want to gather around that and, like, dance around the fire. Um, I think we need to reconnect with, you know, the visceral nature of public hanging. And, yeah, there we go. What are we talking about next? <laughs> that was unexpected. Thank you. Thank you for that. move on so um so look housing and infrastructure we went through uh, an age of austerity where there was a lot of commentary saying that interest rates are low we should be investing in housing and infrastructure then um skipping a bit of time here boris comes in with major promises of planning reform that gets dropped because of political opposition largely down to mps worried about their you know um protests in their constituencies and then we have this government that's in power now wanting to enact major reforms, supply-side reforms, and that's not happening, is it? So we're, we're, we're nowhere near. It's just... When you get into a subject of nimbyism on, on housing and every other, every other subject, it just feels like we are nowhere near overcoming this at the moment. Um, Freddie, question I did want to ask you is um, about housing targets. Um so Liz Truss came in and said the housing target of 300,000 was uh, Stalinist. Uh, do you think we should be setting a housing target? Is that as an aspiration? Does it helpful? Um, deeply conflicted thoughts on this. Um, in, in an ideal world, no, you don't need a housing mark, uh, target because you have a functioning housing market, which sees unmet housing need and is allowed to meet that need and there's no need for a government set target which is you know in a sense um i won't call it this, but it is a that is the government centrally planning the economy that's not though why we have the housing target the reason we have the housing target is we haven't built enough homes and it's this wildly aspirational figures in terms of current government policy whilst also being woefully inadequate that um, the government has no intention of meeting. I think the removal of the housing target is most worrying because of what it signals rather than the target itself. I can set myself as many targets as I want, but it doesn't mean that I've been to the gym this month. Uh, so I think more important is what the government does, and this is a signal that it's possibly moving in the wrong direction. Because yeah, I was reading recently, but the last time that we successfully met a target was when Churchill set a target of 300,000 and um, Macmillan uh, was the one to implement that and they met the target. And since then, we've never managed to meet that aspiration. And now we're in a situation where it seems to me that 
in a situation of uh, economic stagnation, we should be investing in physical and digital infrastructure. We know there's a housing shortage, yet we just seem to be nowhere near to changing our policy on it. And we see this discussion about the anti-growth coalition, but people are highlighting tweet after tweet after tweet of Conservative MPs boasting about how they've stopped, how they prevented the building of a new housing estate, or, you know, and Lib Dem MPs, the same, all at local level. Luke, you've got your hand up. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still thinking I'm at school. It's terrible. But no, I, I, I think you, you mentioned sort of being in a sort of period of economic stagnation, and therefore it's important to build infrastructure. But for a lot of people in Britain, they're not getting hit by this period of economic stagnation. People who have, say, worked for a reasonable amount of time and now earning quite a significant salary, or people that are now retired and watching their house price go up and up and up, these sorts of people are not the ones that are necessarily the most hit by there not being any new jobs in science for 30-year-olds. They're not you not being able to live in Oxford as a as a postdoctoral researcher. These these aren't the people that are being hit. So most of the population is completely oblivious to this. If you ask most people, well, you, you, this is a bit of a meme, but you ask most sort of older people, and they seem to think the reason why young people aren't able to afford houses is because they eat avocados. Yeah, there's a lot of flippancy on there. Yeah. <laughs> cut down on Netflix, cut, cut down on your other but, but I don't think it's flippancy. I think it's genuine ignorance about the situation because it doesn't affect them. If I, you don't have to buy, you don't have to save for a, a 70, 80,000 pound deposit on a house, how are you going to know about it? I want to go even further than it doesn't affect them. I think that one of the key things that sort of changed my understanding of NIMBYism and, and, and this topic is that it's that there are a lot of people, especially if you're retired, but also if you've reached the end of your career uh, or you reach the peak of your career. Um, it's not just that these that, nim- that the anemic growth doesn't affect you. It's that actually the tonic, the the, the solution, will impact you negatively. Um, it. We can go on and on about how, and I'm sure we will, about how maybe we should listen to these people less. But actually, at its heart. If you own a nice house in, let's take Cheshire and Amersham, because you brought up the the Liberal Democrats, and someone is suggesting building 20 flats next to the Metropolitan Line, as obviously good national policy as that is, you personally, you only stand to lose, at least on the margins. So the, the hardest part about NIMBYism, and this is a difficult thing to get a lot of people on sort of Luke and my, our side to understand, is that... It's actually a rational policy response in many senses, which makes it even harder to deal with. It's not irrational. I completely agree. I was reading today about a a proposal to build a science lab in the centre of Stevenage on a car park, and all the local people there aren't going to benefit from that. Maybe a few shop owners are. But at the end of the day, if you're living in Stevenage, you don't necessarily want the sort of Stevenage version, the home county's version of the Wuhan uh, (laughs) vaccine, uh, virus lab on your doorstep. And it's completely understandable that if you live in, as you say, Cheshire and Amersham, you've got a green field to look at, that's nice. You don't want houses. You don't want any of this. It's a rational viewpoint. That's why the solutions to this have to be providing either punishment to bad people or, as I would prefer it, giving them some sort of prize or benefit to actually allowing growth into their area. I'm seeing synergy here with what Matt said, his uh, 
White Elephant Project would be. <laughs> actually, please, I mean, please cut that. I can't actually call for the public hanging of them. Please, please cut that. Listen, <laughs> okay, if, you, if, you've cho- <laughs> if you've chosen to live in Stevenage, then... Uh, <laughs> Punishment uh, enough. Yeah. No, but they haven't chosen. They've been forced out of London and they've been forced <laughs> to live in Stevenage. It's a false choice. We're in a kind of ludicrous situation now in which it's kind of a meme on Twitter now how expensive... Um, you know the most ridiculous, you know, absurd f- flat in 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 London is. I mean, that's just a capital city. But even in, you know, and I, we've discussed this before. And I do come from a position of privilege. I've been a homeowner, um, and it, it, the fact that it's such a position of of power and privilege in this country is is a problem. Um, and I, but I do understand what it means. It's very easy for us to just say you know, we should do this and should do that. And I, I, again, I'm a bit having been a homeowner. Just if someone came and said they're just going to build build this massive estate there or just going to you know you are going to have uh, issues with that so this is and, and obviously a, a MP in a local constituency therefore stands to gain from resisting that because they're going to get elected back in again so I, it just gets to this point where I just you know, feel this immense frustration is how do you overcome this and when you get angry it's like, I used to be very much interested in localism uh, but this seems like a, housing seems to be like a uh, something that has to be dealt with above that now because it's become something that has to be dealt with in the national interest. We need more houses, and it's a major structural issue with the economy now. Uh, but, but then, you know, again, if you don't want to be Stalinist about that and just crush all opposition, you know, it's, it's so much. We're just in this catch twenty two situation. How do you overcome this? That's it's just just. But if you look at say a country like France, which twenty years ago put in. A requirement that every authority, basically every local authority, has to have 20% of their houses as uh, social housing or, or affordable housing. I mean that hasn't been successful. Like, but it's it's on its own terms, it's not reached 20%. But it has increased the number of social and affordable houses in France. And the way they did that was by charging local authorities, basically penalising people that lived there for not doing it. Now you could do something like that. You could do something as I would prefer to actually give benefit to that. So to allow people that are in these areas to get some sort of financial gain. So, for example, you build a solar farm in some area, you get some sort of money from that solar farm. You build a nuclear power station, you get some sort of amount of the profit of that nuclear power station, something like that. Because then you you, you don't just have the, the benefits of, say, the jobs or the extra uh, productivity you get from these new infrastructure. You get a tangible financial benefit that's written in your council tax bill every month. Oh, your council tax is 100 quid cheaper this year because we've built this nuclear power station or because we've built this solar farm. Oh, wait, and that sounds very similar to the, the you know, the fracking conversation, doesn't it? It's uh, <laughs> We will we'll incentivise communities and we will give them payback for uh, fracking their land. But, I mean, it's, the government is prepared to do ac- take action like that, but obviously... Not in this. Funny enough, I did actually have to attend a, a, a public consultation about that when I lived in Barnsley, because there was a possibility they were going to be building very close to where I owned a house at the time. But um, compare that, compare that to what you, as you say, Ben. Like a public consultation is a very different thing, because in a public consultation, the best thing that you can get out of that. Um, unless, frankly, you're quite weird, is for the scheme not to go ahead. Because for you, the benefit is entirely on the margin. Let's t- t- go back to homes here, but this applies to any of the schemes. Um, the benefit is 
300 more flats. So a marginal, an entirely marginal downward pressure on, on rents in your area, um, which has an even, if you're a homeowner, actually is even more complicated than that. But certainly take uh, the building of the Abingdon Reservoir. There is a marginal, very diffuse uh, impact in that we have a better functioning water system, but a massively localised and very high cost. Um, sort of the economic answer to that would clearly be that some sort of negotiation here to go, well, this cost, you value your view. Let's say what we're saying is we we're going to put a, a housing estate in, in, at the edge of your garden, so you're going to lose your view. You value that view at some economic cost. Maybe the government doesn't need to set into all of that, but some compensation, if that greases the wheels, if that gets things moving, frankly, we're well past the point where we're going to win by some massive national reorganisation of this stuff. Things like street votes, which are one of priced out's key policies on housing, um, do exactly that. We say, how can we get homeowners to have an economic share in boosting the housing supply, which is massively good at a national level? Um, Freddie, when we had Anya Martin of Priced Out on previously, she was discussing the Green Belt. She called it, I think, the city containment scheme and called for its abolition. Uh, do you agree with that? Should we abolish or reform the Green Belt? It's absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely right. That the, it's it's a city containment scheme. Uh, calling it the Green Belt is a fantastic piece of branding or pro propaganda, depending on which side you come from, because plenty of the Green Belt is not green. Um, and it, it, it was designed... It was certainly wasn't designed to protect green space. It was designed for a very specific purpose that was uh, the rapid expansion of British cities uh, in the mid and uh, early post-war period uh, sort of scared a lot of the government. So they created... Uh, in the States, they have... In parts of the States, they have similar policies, and they do... They call them urban growth boundaries. Um, so Annie's absolutely right. And, it, I mean, it clearly needs at least reform. Um, I don't think it's relevant to talk about abolition of the Green Belt simply because it's just not... It's not a politically viable policy. I mean, I, we could spend all evening today talking about things we'd like to see. Uh, it's not going to happen. So we're not mm. going to abolish the Green Belt. But there is a huge amount of really reasonable reform you could do to the Green Belt um, that would make much more... Diff or, or would make the majority of difference, uh, positive difference, with a lot less of the, of the downside. So, for example, you could do a two-in, one-out policy. For every square kilometre you de-designate, you add two square kilometres of Greenbelt land somewhere in the UK. Um, but the point is that a lot of our current Greenbelt land is the most... has the highest economic potential. Uh, the Centre for Cities estimated we could put a million homes just in walking distance of existing rail infrastructure in London's Greenbelt. I mean, that's a no-brainer. And even if you then took periphery land and designated it green belt it's not ideal but you're still protecting green space and the most economically productive land is now more able to be exploited so there is much there are much better ways than saying just abolish the green belt because as much as luke and i might want to see that happen um it's it's not going to happen and the only game in town is working with reasonable people on all sides to get things passed that's one. Thank you, Freddie. Um, 
wanted to begin to broaden the subject a bit beyond housing. Does do you need? Uh, if, if we go, and, if, we, if we want to do that, I, I sort of <laughs> have my sort of pet subjects on something like science infrastructure. Oops. So Britain is this. Britain is this massive science superpower, really, completely punching above our weight in the way that we we we've, don't really do in any other field anymore. Maybe um, our policy in Ukraine is is another example. But but science is one of the best ways we have of. In- producing productivity growth and growing the economy. Almost entirely by gen- accident as well, which is yeah, incredible about exactly. British science policy. It's fantastic. And, and, and even the most fundamental science, so doing, doing research into Higgs bosons or something like that, produces productivity growth in the UK. As, Luke, sort will of know, as Luke will know, most of that comes out of the University of Cambridge. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Calm down, guys. Yeah, Calm down. But there's a large part, and let's not get into that. <laughs> but it also, it generally makes lives better. We've got, like, the COVID vaccine, whatever has happened in the world. We're only doing this podcast through the web, which is invented at CERN, where I work. All of this stuff has been done through science. It's making science better. It's making lives better. It's growing the economy. And as I said, Britain really punches above its weight. In terms of our financing on science, we spend less than most of Europe. We spend less than half of what Korea does as a percentage of GDP. Yet, in terms of Nobel Prizes in physics, chemistry, medicine, we're basically second only to the United States. We, we do almost, we do over, sorry, over three times the Nobel Prizes in those three subjects than France has, which is a similar economy, similar history in science, yet we're doing that. And it's being strangled by things like green belts, nimbyism, all that sort of stuff. There was a recent article in the FT which was talking about this and how life sciences in general, which is a really, really big growth topic. I mean, life sciences, this will be... The 20th century was the century of physics. This century will be the century of life sciences, biology, all of that sort of stuff. And at the moment, in the UK, it's growing around sort of 30-odd percent a year. Uh, 35, I think. And around half of that is in Oxford and around Oxford University. And it all relies on there being space to do it. So labs, offices, whatever sort of infrastructure they need. And yet, basically, in Oxford and Cambridge, there are no, there's no lab space at all. Zero. We're not talking about there not being very much. We're talking about zero. So in terms of if you are trying to think of a a new startup or a company trying to say, we want to expand our our lab here, we want to produce this new thing. British Silicon Valley and all that as well. Exactly. They have to move to somewhere like Boston, the United States. They can't do it in in the UK. And that's terrible. And if you think about what a lab is, it's essentially a massive building built that has to be built quite close to a university and quite close to a hospital. So you get the benefit of the sort of exchange of ideas between the university, the lab, and the and, hospital. And That's basically the green belt. Just, that is, if you look in Oxford or Cambridge, that is the green belt. It's the only space there's, a, there's space to build that. And, and, and just to add some... some, some I mean, this is bringing it back to housing, but it's deeply related to this. I was on the board of the University of Cambridge for two years. And, I mean, the, the U Cambridge and the university is the UK's biggest... Uh, startup cluster. Basically, uh, all of our high science startups they happen in Cambridge. Uh, some in Oxford, but but uh, Cambridge is the biggest. Um, I was on the board, uh, and uh, our biggest our biggest problem is we pay the European universities in general pay way less than US universities. Just just as a rule. Um, and then Oxford and Cambridge especially, but the London universities, Manchester, Birmingham as well, have higher housing costs as well. Mm-hmm. So we are paying maybe half 
for an equivalent level, uh, equivalent level position. You have less career security and you're paying 40, 50% of your uh, gross income in housing. I mean, the biggest issue is, is development and development control. Lab space, Luke's right, to a rounding error, there is none left. Um, housing, no one can afford to live in the cities. Mm. Um, and that doesn't just affect the companies, it affects the university as well, because the wage bill is going on, on housing. There's a reason why both the University of Cambridge and the University of Oxford are desperately getting into the development of housing. It's not just because it's lucrative. In fact, it's not necessarily lucrative when you do it as a social project, but to employ anyone, they need a place to live. So we're getting away from nimbyism now, is that what we're doing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And on to what? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask these guys a few questions. I'm going to get to know these, these guys. The guys behind the opinions. Yeah? <laughs> I, feel I, I feel I am personally just a sum of opinions and nothing more. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we're, I mean, other shit is just a blanket thing for us to just talk, you know, we're going to have a... Well, let's just get started, yeah? I know how I'm going to start. Uh, Luke. Yes. Now, uh, you studied for a PhD, yeah? Absolutely. You, in particle physics. Yeah, you recently finished that, did you? Yep, I finished it in... I sort of submitted my thesis in July whilst I was on a beach in Thailand. Mm. And um, I'll get to this beach a- <laughs> in Thailand thing as well. Actually, it was a work trip. It was a work trip. A work event. Actually, no, I'll get to this now. Do you yeah. know what? Now, since you mentioned it, Luke, do you know? Um, I invited you on because uh, you've opined on Twitter quite a bit about these about nimbyism. Now, I'll tell you how the first thing I uh, from the beach in Thailand. Well, this is the is thing great? about his Twitter account. <laughs> I've been following him on Twitter for quite a while now. You know, over the last year or two, I can't remember how long, but. There was a bit of a pattern where I was getting to the point where, yes, I enjoyed following his Twitter account. And you, you tweet a lot of photos and things, but I was starting to get a thing in me where, because he was tweeting beautiful pictures of, you know, mountains in Geneva where he's studying or living or traveling or whatever. And now I'm just beginning to think, this fuck, I'm going to have to fucking mute this guy because, you know, <laughs> as we discussed on this podcast, you know, the, the, what I've, the, my life experience in, the, in recent times has been very much in 
one room <laughs> you know it's been a it's been a, a period of of my life being very much constricted into small small parts of the world which i'm, I'm trying to change so very beautiful pictures of just watching and thinking you know i think i've tweeted you once um and you wouldn't get the reference but it was basically a reference to a, a book and film called uh, the talented mr ripley where uh one guy who really is really into and envious of the lifestyle of the other character, uh, murders that character and takes over their lifestyle. <laughs> don't. So I have to watch out. Well, I don't think I'd pass for you um, due to <laughs> age. Um, but... Hair color. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So where do you live, Luke? And... Uh, so I live on the border uh, with Geneva. So I live in France because because of NIMBYs, I can't actually afford to live in Geneva. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I live in I live in France. Um, it was the first time. I mean, I'm from sort of. I know you were mocking me for oh, being yeah, so I'm from, from a northern of, mining town. <laughs> but I'm not. His well, grandfather was the, the son of a miner's <laughs> boss. Just, <laughs> just to be clear, Luke, you know, there's parts around where I live. If I go to, people will say you're not from around here. Are you? You're not. You're not. You know, you're, you're yeah, posh because you know. So yeah. I get that as well. Yeah, but I get that when I go back home. Like, say, I'm from a sort of normal ex-industrial town in the Midlands, and um, I'd never really had any experiences as a child. So every time I was offered something, I took it. I went to the University of Manchester and I basically just spent four years gathering experiences. I had to, When I used to go out on a Friday night, we used to walk home for 45 minutes because it was we went to the next town and we didn't want to pay for a taxi. And so when going to Manchester, being able to get a bus home was amazing. And then I, uh, when I was applying for my PhD, I decided... I'd really like to work abroad and it's one of the best, easiest opportunities because you're basically being paid to have fun for three years or basically being paid to sort of do what you're interested in the most. And so I thought, well, okay, one of the things I'm interested in is living abroad. And so I wrote that in my application. If there's a chance to live abroad, I'd like that. And so when I applied for one and they were like, well, we could send you to CERN for three years, I was like, absolutely, that sounds fantastic. So all of this, like going to mountains and that, is because I uh, have sort of tried to jump on every opportunity to see new things that I have. I mean, Thailand, when I went to Thailand, it was the first time I was out of Europe. And so it, it, it's, it's like it's completely new experiences for me. And it's just brilliant, and I love it. And obviously, I, I cannot complain about my life at all, I, apart from not being able to buy a house. Uh, <laughs> just say that, because I, I, I appreciate that. I, I like that uh, just-say-yes attitude, because I've often shown that in my own life, but though, that, that just seems to have led me into very, very different situations. But anyway, um, <laughs> I did find interesting that you tweeted the title of your PhD, which I'm going to read now. Correct me if I'm uh, wrong. Uh, go <laughs> I don't, I don't remember what it was. So, uh. Studies for upgrading and optimising the CLEAR, which I believe is an acronym, yep. beamline and generating uniform electron beam profiles for radiation experiments. Now, the thing is here, um, what would be good if you could... I mean, obviously, I know what that means, um, you know, but some of our listeners, I think, you know, might not be on that sort of level. Could you explain that in a sentence? Because what the fuck? I could explain it in about a minute. If you give me a minute, I can explain oh, exactly. 30 seconds. 30, 30 seconds, yeah. 30, all right, give me 30 seconds, right? 
get your timer out. So CERN is a particle physics lab. They smash stuff together, create high-energy collisions. High energy equals mc squared, big energy, you can produce new mass, produce particles. What CLEAR is, is a test facility for various bits and pieces to do with that. The rest of my PhD was using the technology that had been developed to do this high-energy physics to do radiotherapy. So producing uniform beam profiles was to do radiotherapy in a way where you get a uniform amount of dose on the tumour itself. And I did that in quite a novel way using lasers and what's called a photoinjector uh, and uh, did that in a really nice way. And that's what I did my PhD thesis on, radiotherapy. Is that thirty seconds? That was that was that, that was that was that was that was that was I was looking at the bottom of my audacity. That was that was that was thirty eight seconds. Damn. So Wait, so so I, I think I think that's that's major corrections for you, Doctor Dykes. Well, yeah, you lost me around twenty seconds. Yeah, you, fit the, you, fit, you got it within a reasonable time. It doesn't mean I now understand it. No, but they <laughs> Yes. Oh, no, I'm, I like, yeah, I do other stuff. I read poetry. No. Um, oh, God. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I just... This is I, was great thing. Never, I was never... We get you on a podcast and then we uh, mock you for having, have it, <laughs> having done something I just don't understand. But I was never... I was, honestly, I was never really one of the nerds. Like, I was always the guy that was playing football, playing rugby at school and getting stuck in... You don't in need to justify yourself a bit. I, when I was at university studying for a degree, I... I, I liked the idea of uh, studying for a PhD. And I'm not trying to do any false modesty here. I'm not saying was uh, too stupid to do a PhD in sort of literature or uh, sort of area. But one thing I definitely was, was far too lazy and unfocused, and that was never going to happen. So well done to you. So, you know. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Just I thought it was funny when I read it and just thought, I just, that, what? <laughs> Freddie. You graduated. I didn't do a. I didn't do a PhD in you did not, physics. I'm afraid. No, so, uh, you did a degree in computer science, followed by uh, studying management studies at the Cambridge Cambridge Judge Business School. Did you say management studies? Yes. I don't say management studies. Well, Ben slur, slurring as well. I've had a, I've had a few. I've had a few now. Um, That's why it was more than ten minutes in the break. Yeah. And you wanted to apply your strong technical skills to business problems, and that's brought you to uh, housing. We're not going to get back to housing again. And you joined up with the Priced Out campaign. That's the story of your life, is it? 22 years old. I think, I think, I think I, I th- it just sounds like you've read my, read my CV, which, uh, yeah. which I think is slightly, slightly different to the story of my life. I, I would at least, I'd lied, I'd at least hope. I forgot that was still public. Um, so tell us, tell us the entire story of your life up to this point. Well, well, so uh, it was 1999. Um, I wait a minute. You were born in 1999. Oh, jeez. Oh, I was born in two. Th- I was born in I was oh, starting at the. I was starting at the beginning. Right. Um, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't know what that makes you two feel, but even that makes me feel. Oh, shut up. I'm 38. <laughs> 38 today. 38. I remember '99. Yeah. I do. I, I remember the bloody eclipse. You do not. I was. That was '99. First, first time I ever got drunk. Millennium Eve. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Freddie. Anyway, um, I, can't, I literally can't remember where I was. I'll, I'll, I'll say how I got involved in in priced out and housing. Yes. Uh, which was, I did a lot of campaigning for the Liberal Democrats, um, and uh, because I started with sort of being very anti-Brexit and the Liberal Democrats were the obvious choice and I am a liberal, um, unlike a lot of the Liberal Democrat Party, it turns out. Um, And I started campaigning 
for the Liberal Democrats, got very involved in Lib Dem politics, both nationally and locally, uh, worked uh, setting up Chukra Munna's campaign for the 2019 general election, that sort of thing, and realised simultaneously that the Liberal Democrats were really, really bad on housing. Um, uh, I mean, all three parties are bad on housing, but the Liberal Democrats, being a very local-focused party, yeah, have a lot they, of issues with it. Yeah, that's where they build from, isn't it? They're very good local. And I think, I, I think a lot of Lib Dems would, would recognise that, that actually if, if you have a party that draws its campaign strength from being a hyper-local party, it's going to be NIMBY in many cases. And, it, mm. it, it, you know, it's a... Com- yeah, well, there are many reasons for that. So, yeah, it becomes, it becomes a matter of political necessity, doesn't uh, it? For as 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 a Brexit was clearly lost, um, or well, we my side lost on Brexit <laughs> as that became clear in 2019, and I realised that housing was the most important thing, and I realised the route to do good work on that was probably not in the Lib Dems. I got more and more involved in campaigns like Priced Out and. They needed someone to help out, and I started running their Instagram and then the Twitter, and then, yeah, I'm now taken over as director, which is really good fun, and uh, a bit of a crash course in how to do things. Um, but it's been an exciting time so far. Crash course in what sense? What do you mean by that? Well, a campaign like Priced Out has a huge number of different moving parts because we try and cover everything from volunteers and keeping a public message to working with councillors to working with uh to running events to working with mps where we can um and to talking to the government and to talking to industry so uh, trying to keep all of those plates spinning on an entirely volunteer that's not my job that's an entirely volunteer role is a huge amount of work and something that uh is a bit of a learning curve, um, not least because there are so many different parts. It's so tough in those kind of... I mean, I've been involved in a few things like that. Um, so tough to keep pe- get people uh, enthusiastic about it, get people involved, get people to put in the work, get um, attention on social media, uh, get the uh, political um, uh, attention from from MPs or, or, or other commentators with big audiences. It's not, a, it's not an easy task, um, especially when on a subject like... Uh, housing, where it just we've, it's, you know, as we've discussed, it feels so far away from from the reforms we need. It does feel like, though, even it's easy to get sucked into a Twitter bubble, which I'm sure all four of us are. Yeah. But well, I, I would say three of us at least. I would say that at least on housing, um, there's an increasing. I mean, price out's been around for a decade, and. I'm sure that at the time it was set up, those I, I was not involved at the time. I was 12. Uh, sorry, sorry, Ben. But um, when it was set up, I can imagine that the housing crisis probably seemed like a, an incredibly uh, urgent and prescient crisis then, let alone how it is now. And it does feel like more and more the political establishment are starting to realise it. We've got, we went to Labour conference and we got a lot of... This was meant to be a part about not, not, not politics. We've got a lot of people realising that the housing crisis, councillors and MPs, was the major crisis. So the recognition, I think, is there now. It's doing something about it that still proves elusive. But do you I think it's have... in, interesting, you know, like, I think, obviously, I think the voter in the street probably isn't quite aware of kind of, they assume, you know, the government has, you know, the new ministers and they have their axes to grind and they develop policy in line with their ideology, you know, in line with the 
with their party. Um, but there is all of these, you know, obviously you know, pr pressure groups such as yours who are consistent and been there for years and have the and they are developing, you know, evidence based um, arguments and are like, like I say, pressure groups that are getting the ear of ministers, and that's kind of. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of hidden. Yeah, I think for the usual. Party. I think the unfortunate fact is that it probably has less to do with pressure groups like us, and more to do with the fact that the housing crisis has expanded to more groups of people. Um, I, I, you know, I wish that we could claim credit, and I think we we punch above our weight in many ways as a group. But I do think that the the, the unfortunate truth is the housing crisis just continued to get worse, which meant means that more and more people are wrapped up in the cycle of high rents and not being able to afford a home. Yeah. Which is why it's obviously important to keep the stuff sort of ticking over in the meantime, so that when people do realise that, it must be the same as what you experienced, Ben, with the sort of EFTA stuff, that your feeling must be that you really, as a small group like yourself, you're not going to be the ones that drive yeah. the change. The change will be driven by the actual realities of the situation. And what you've got to be there, or, mm. or what groups like you've got to be there for, is to latch on when the political situation changes. Yeah, yeah. It's very hard to keep the, the momentum up as well. Yeah, it's, it's mainly about trying to 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 influence the uh, discussion and influence, influence the influences because, uh, yeah... Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a slog. So let's move on to uh, one last thing. Uh, it is my birthday, so happy birthday to me! Yep, happy birthday! Happy to birthday! Yes. Yeah. Thanks. Sixtieth, uh, is it? <laughs> thanks. Yeah, well, I've talked about your age lately, so you're welcome to give some back to me now. Uh, me being so fucking ancient. It's particularly uh, thirty-seven. Thirty-eight. Are you thirty-seven? 38? Oh, I'll oh, today, oh you're course, 38. Yeah. So you probably remember when Manchester United were a good team. Oh, that's... There's, 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 no, there's no need for that. There's no need for football reference. I mean, I do, yes, because uh, <laughs> the last uh, the last peak I was a, a season ticket holder. Now, it's becoming it's becoming distant memory now. It's also very weird, you know, it's like, in 38, it's 2022. That used to be a year in which, you know, back in the day, as Matt will know, not you two, young people, uh, <laughs> films used to be set in, you know, the 2000s because it was so far away, you know. Now, Soylent Green. Soylent Green is set in 2022. Exactly. A lot of a lot of films are, and, but you know, it's been a very low key birthday today. I, mean, I went into the office. Good. I took the kids to um, to a Breakfast Club, which is where they, where they go before I go work, to go to work. About a minute before I dropped them off, they remembered it was my birthday and started singing Happy Birthday to me, which was nice. Then uh, got to work, and uh, a couple of people throughout the day remembered it was my birthday. Some people texted me. I've had uh, one present, which was a, uh, a knife set. Uh, my uh, damn yeah, I love that. I love that. I did. Did it, I did. Did it come with? Did it come with? Apparently, I I gave my my girlfriend a knife for for her birthday this summer, and. I was told... Sorry, that is the most blokey present to my girlfriend. <laughs> well, that's like, I was told... I was told that's like when your no girlfriend nice. asked for a drill or something. In no uncertain terms that one had to give a token gift of money with the, <laughs> with the knife that they could then hand back because it's very, very bad luck to gift a knife. Because it severs the relationship, apparently. Oh, so you have to no, buy no, them. No, you no, have no, to buy... No. I was told in no uncertain terms by... <laughs> Uh, no, but well, by my mother, uh, that, that that was important. <laughs> so you did that. Nice. Sorry, you said, so that's what you did. You gave it. I, I, I taped a penny to the that she could then hand back to me, so that I wasn't 
severing the relationship, I suppose. Nice. Well, yeah, man, it's, you know, cover all the bases. May as well, you know, be, better be safe than sorry, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I was invited out. I was invited out by two separate parties. I don't want to have come across as sad, but I was just like, no, I'm going to Prague on Thursday to uh, visit a friend and uh, celebrate my birthday then. So, I don't, you know, I don't want to come across like some loser who nobody cares about his birthday. You know, that's not the case. I could have gone out tonight if I wanted to. And you've just spelled that with your mm. podcast. Yeah, instead decided to record this podcast with you two. Went to work. You could have got. You could have got out. But you could have got out tonight. But what would you have been doing? Uh, you know, going out. Well, well, if I'll be honest, it was. You would have been on your own. No, I did go to the pub yes, after I got I got home right. from work, which was nice. Yeah, well, this is where I was planning this on your own. This very thing yeah. that we're doing now. Most of those plans, I don't think, have worked out. But you know, I had a couple of pints. I could have gone out. I mean, it was my mum who invited me, and um, also <laughs> my my wife, who I'm now separated from. Oh, this is again tragic now. Oh my god! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> no, you might, you're making it sound more tragic now. It's, it's fine. Yeah. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Great. I just sign off now and now. No, continue. You had a point to say. Now say it. Uh, oh, well, no, I don't, I don't feel like it now. You've ruined everything. Um, <laughs> I don't know what my, my point was. It was my birthday, and I just wanted to draw attention to the fact that, but you've ruined it now. Um, point is, I'm going abroad uh, in th- two days for the first time in three years. So, you know, maybe I'll take some photos, Luke, of things I'm doing. <laughs> Might not be. Oh, I, I hope you're very <laughs> jealous. I've never been to Prague. Have you not? Nice, nice. No. I, I try not to spend the whole time just drinking their cheap beer and not in, enjoying the uh, general scenery and uh, uh, environment, this... but uh, we'll see. This is the danger, isn't it? It's like when you go to Amsterdam or somewhere. Beautiful city, and then you spend the whole weekend wasted. Well, I, I haven't been abroad since 2019, and it's even longer since I was away without my children. Um, the first time I went away with, without, with my children, after the born, and went on a holiday, I realised my normal holiday routine wasn't going to work, because my normal holiday routine is, the holiday has started now, I'm going to start drinking and stop drinking just before I have to get the plane home. Um, which doesn't work when you get there with the kids and like, oh, I can't do that now because I have this level of responsibility so mm, it's not looking good I think I, I think I might be uh, in a different uh, a different plane for for most of the trip <laughs> yeah <laughs> gonna let loose <laughs> listen uh, Freddie Luke thank you very much for coming on uh, um, some uh, of that will you. contribute to some kind of coherent discussion um <laughs> And I feel we've been quite long, though, haven't we? It's sort of about four hours since we started. Yeah, yeah well, I just couldn't <laughs> shut you two guys up on this. Yeah, yeah. Plenty of... Isn't that, that, it sounds like if Matt's the producer, it's his problem, right? You've got to edit it. So You um, are observant, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Basically, this podcast is Matt's podcast in which I turn up and usually just make it more difficult for Matt to... <laughs> and then... Sometimes we'll complain, where, where is it? Why aren't you doing this quicker? Where is it? And then he'll tell me to fuck off. Uh, and then when it comes to my contribution, I'd take ages to actually do anything. That's basically how it works. So good work, yeah. Matt. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. I was hoping for a, uh, you know, interesting back and forth discussion, casual, and uh, worked out pretty nicely. So thank you. We had that. Yeah, we, we definitely had it. had it. So thanks, guys. Look, yeah, thank yeah, you I had a, had a good time. Yeah, um, that's what we involved. Good excuse to drink some whiskey.
As you say, I got progressively. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad the end of the discussion wasn't some difficult economic question. Was in fact just making fun of Ben because I was more drunk. By that yeah. Point. Yeah. Good. That's yeah. Often happens. I must say, I, I found out during this. I just sort of, as the podcast went on, I sort of just you're, you're reasonably camp, and it's sort of quite funny. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) that's been commented on before I'm sorry if that's the wrong thing to bring up it's not it's just worrying because um, I I am I am you're back on I'm the market now. now, aren't you? No, yeah, it's difficult. Now, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not seeking anything. But the the last two times I went out with a, a friend of mine, um, both times people asked if we were gay. So, you know, one time was was we were out in a um, a local late night cocktail bar. Uh, in, in, and the second time was a latex <laughs> party. And, you know, you can see how they got confused. Yeah, and it was like, yeah, we, we, he wanted to stay out, so we stayed out for a bit. And uh, drinking cocktails, I like cocktails. And uh, I did notice a couple of girls who I thought we maybe could get talking to them. I, I wasn't going to because it wasn't, you know, wasn't thinking about that. I thought, you know, in a, in a right situation, I would do that. But then one of the friends just came up to me, put their arm around me, and I was like, yeah, yeah put their arm around me. You know, one of those moments. And she said, hey, are you two a gay couple? Oh, nice one. <laughs> Is this what happens in Yorkshire? Apparently so. You see two men out, out <laughs> together, it's like, oh... Well, that's what I Must thought. Begin, you know. <laughs> what, what is it? Is it the pina coladas, maybe? Um, I don't know. And then I was at the York race after that, a charity event with the same person um, who I invited because I had a space and my wife didn't want to come for reasons. And... Um, <laughs> and... Uh, there was this was a quite a posh do. There was there was lords, Lord and Lady Halifax there, and people like that. You know, uh, I didn't really quite fit in, and you know, it's quite a, a, an amusing place, to, uh, event to go to. But we got there and we were talking to uh, a local business owner who was quite posh and uh, asking me uh, why I'd brought. You know, who, who is this? Guy? Who is, is your friend James? And I was like, yeah, I was just saying. Oh well, um, I had a plus one, and my wife couldn't come, so I, I invited my friend James, and he's. She turned around to this old fella next to her and said, uh, "Oh no, he is married. He's, he is married. You know, this is just his friend." And the guy said, "Oh, I thought you were a couple of left footers." <laughs> yeah. Well, same week. Left footers. Same week, and you had two situations that are reminding you of a 1980s comedy. To be fair, if he was a member of the British aristocracy, he he, he could be an equal parts homophobic or interested. I definitely so, think. It, well, know. yeah, probably a bit of both. I'm not sure which, uh, but yeah, there you go. So that's how things are going for me. I don't know how quite why we're talking about that now, but um, <laughs> I, I'm just so sorry. Oh, good. <laughs> every every conversation. Oh, it was your fault. It was your fault. Yeah, you said I was entirely my fault. I was camp. Uh, either I've, that's fine. Uh, I've had worse things thrown at me. Thank you for um, thank you for joining us tonight. And um, thanks for having us yeah, on. Yeah, uh, look forward to uh, meeting you or talking to you again sometime in the future. Yeah, yeah. If, if I yeah, if you're ever in Geneva, uh, well, I'd like to be. You know what to yeah. do. Uh, yeah, I will turn <laughs> up on your doorstep. Yeah, nice one. Thank you. Uh, cheers, guys. <laughs> good, have a good night. Have a jolly good evening. Uh, Take care. Right. See ya. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye.